But I do want to spend just a little bit of time this morning in the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm going to be reading uh, this morning from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Before we do that, let me just uh, draw before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we dive into your word this morning, um, Father, just pray, Lord, God, having just seen in those photos and testimonies such a compelling picture of what it is to be a neighbor. Uh, Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would take these words and cement all that was just said into something, God, that we go out from here to live. God, thank you for the wise and true words that you put on Andrew, Pastor Andrew's heart this morning, and Troy, and God, Lila, and Jacob, and the whole team. God, just thank you for their unified testimony to us this morning about being a people who love in action. God, do that work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, that is, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In this parable, which we're going to spend just a little time in this morning, we see a confrontational Jesus. I say that um, because basically he's confronting error. Uh, Jesus does not enter into, is not the initiator of this dialogue. There's a lawyer in the crowd, an expert in the law, and that lawyer is going to pose two questions to Jesus. And Jesus and his answers will confront some faulty, unexamined assumptions that are behind this man's questions. His first question that this lawyer asks is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We're told very explicitly that this, was, this question was offered to test Jesus. They're in a public setting. This question's thrown out there. What will Jesus say? And something really needs to be cleared up here. In verse 28, Jesus answers the man to, uh, basically, Jesus says, what do you think about it? It's always poor form to answer a question with a question. I, I was taught growing up, but Jesus does it an awful lot, so maybe my teachers were wrong. He says, what do you think? 
And he gives this answer. He quotes two of the great texts in the Old Testament, which in another passage, uh, Jesus says are the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. Love God with your whole person and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, You've re- that's right. Do that and you'll live. And the lawyer begins this exchange by asking Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And this question, which of course is top of mind for a lot of human beings walking around on planet Earth right now, betrays a small but not inconsequential seed of error in the mind of the lawyer. By asking, what shall I do? He betrays a belief that salvation is attainable through human doing. In other words, he's asking, what price do I have to pay? What boxes do I have to check? Tell me which hoops must I jump through to get there? And the gospel, of course, is not a call for humans to do something in order that they might be saved. There's plenty that Christians will do as a joyous, active response to the gospel. The faith that responds to the gospel invitation is a faith that does. The love that's born in a person because of the love that's shown to us by Jesus is a love that does. But he has this misunderstanding that salvation can be achieved through human doing. The sinner who cries out in sick desperation, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, is closer to salvation than the one who asks, what do I have to do? So it is perhaps a bit confusing after Jesus asked this expert in the law what the law of the God says on the matter, and the lawyer quotes these two passages that Jesus then answered, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now who doesn't love to be told by the teacher you gave the correct answer? Jesus says to the lawyer, you got it right, your answer was correct. But does that mean, then, that salvation is a product of human doing after all? He asks, how how will I be saved? The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, bingo, you got it. Does that then mean that he's affirming this man's impulse towards earning through works his salvation? I would say certainly not. He says that this is the correct answer. He does not say that it's possible. I would put this answer from Jesus in the same category as other statements he makes, like in Matthew 5.20, again, speaking about how a person can be saved, saying, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Scribes and Pharisees are like the Michael Jordan of law-keeping. They're the best human effort that ever was at keeping the law. And Jesus says to them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the best human effort that ever was, you can't get into heaven. And then he wraps up that part of the Sermon on the Mount by saying this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is Jesus there encouraging you to try and live a life of moral perfection in order to attain salvation? I don't think so. I think he's trying to show us the reality of what a hole we're in. 
In Matthew 22:40, Jesus makes the extraordinary statement that these two commands that the lawyer quotes, to love God and love your neighbor, they're like two summary representative statements that contain all the laws of God. To love God with your whole person and to love your neighbor as yourself is to keep all the commands of God perfectly. So yeah, this lawyer answers correctly, and Jesus recognized the rightness of his response that what's required to get salvation is absolute moral perfection. But Jesus is not saying that it's possible for this man or indeed any person to do this. Jesus is saying, you've got to be perfect like God is perfect. This man's question is not unlike if the Statue of Liberty fell over on its side and he had asked Jesus, what do I have to do to set it back up on its pedestal? And Jesus is like, I don't know, Google it. So he Googles it and he says, well, it says here it weighs 450,000 pounds. I guess I'll have to lift 450,000 pounds. And Jesus goes, yep, that's right. (laughs) That's essentially the equivalent of the exchange we just witnessed. What do I have to do to earn salvation? Google it. Okay? Says I have to be perfect. That's right. Bingo. (laughs) You've answered correctly. Now, this brings us to question number two. This response from Jesus, yeah, you got it right, is an absolute haymaker of a punch aimed right at the man's conscience. And the lawyer's follow-up question reveals, I think, that 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 punch landed with some force. And this is a good thing, because before anyone can ever receive the good news of the gospel, they must first come to grips with the bad news of, how, of their own sinfulness. Nobody's ever received the gospel who didn't first come to a place of mourning over their sin debt. This guy needs to be made to feel the depth of his sinfulness in order that he can receive with joy the gift of salvation. Now, I can't be, we can't be, nobody can be exactly sure of what the lawyer was thinking as he asks this second question, but to my mind, there are two possibilities. First, I think quite possibly that Jesus' answer stirred up some uneasiness in this self-confident man. The high demands of the law may possibly have left this man feeling guilty and condemned, And now he's looking for some small print in God's contract, a loophole that might absolve him of wrongdoing and get him off the hook. A second possibility is this, though. I think quite possibly, maybe instead of feeling uneasy in his conscience towards God, he may just simply feel accused by Jesus in the midst of a big crowd. So when it says that he feels the need to justify himself, it is left to us to wonder if that means he is trying to justify himself to God or to the onlookers or to Jesus himself, who he does not yet understand to be God. And which is true depends on whether his conscience is bothering him or if Jesus' accusing tone bothered him. Is his heart troubled or are his feathers ruffled? I don't know which is going on. We don't know. But he feels the need to justify himself, either to God or to these people. And so he asks this second follow-up question. He really goes full lawyer on Jesus. (laughs) He reaches into his lawyer bag of tricks and he said, okay, 
you're throwing a term around. Let's define it. Let's put some parameters around this thing. Who is my neighbor? And again, I think this is a good thing. If he can be made to feel the weight of his own sinfulness, he might be saved, but he's not there yet. It says he's bent on justifying himself. He's not looking to be justified in Jesus, but rather to justify himself to Jesus. And until he dies to that fallen impulse of pride to justify himself, he will never know the justification that comes through Jesus. By asking, who is my neighbor, I think this guy is retreating into lawyer 101. Let's define terms. Let's see if there's some way I can find to get around this. And in response to this second question from the lawyer, Jesus tells our parable for this morning, that very famous parable of the Good Samaritan. We're not going to go through verse by verse every detail of this parable. We don't have time for that this morning. But what's most interesting to me about this parable is that Jesus never asks the question, answers the question he actually asked. Have you ever noticed that in this parable? The lawyer asked in verse 29, who is my neighbor? But in verse 36, Jesus brings the parable to a conclusion by asking, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The parable clarifies what a neighbor is, not who this man's neighbors were. The lawyer wants to know who his neighbors are, and Jesus pushes back with, what kind of a neighbor are you, sir? It seems to me that what the lawyer is asking is, who do I have an obligation to love? To whom do I owe respect and consideration and sacrificial care? Who falls within my area of responsibility? Please tell me this so I can do for them and know I checked the box. However, spoiler alert, in the parable, the man who is beaten and robbed and left for dead is not the neighbor. His circumstances reveal who among the three is a neighbor. And once again, we see that there is a seed of error in the very question the lawyer is asking. In fact, the second question is offered in service to his first bad question. He's doubling down. His aim is to define as narrowly as possible whom he must love. But this parable answers with a broad, expansive vision of what, what a loving a person motivated by love looks like as they navigate this fallen, broken world. He says, who are my neighbors? Jesus says, who are you? What kind of person are you? That's the question. And that's the question that confronted my heart this week as I looked at this parable. I've been aware of this parable basically my whole life. I'm pretty sure it was taught to me as a kid on a flannel graph or something. I don't know. I can't place the date or age when I first heard the story of the Good Samaritan. But until this past week of study, I was under the impression that Jesus was saying in his answer through this parable that anyone who needs our help is our neighbor. And of course, I think that's true. I think Christians motivated by love should meet needs as we see them. 
We should be like this Samaritan who helped in a sacrificial way the man who was robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. I'm not saying anything but, yeah, we should help meet needs. But again, until this past week of study, the main point of this parable eluded me, and I don't know how that happened. It's true, of course, that we should meet needs, but I think the main thing is that that Jesus is communicating to this lawyer is that we need to stop trying to figure out whom we're supposed to love. We need to stop figuring out, defining for me as narrowly as possible, God, what I must do. Because this is not how Jesus loved us. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was motivated to do what he did, not by who you are, but he was operating from a place of who he was. And this lawyer is intent on saying, God, you need to tell me who I owe, who, who I must love. Not transform me into somebody who operates in all my relationships from a place of love. Jesus turns the question around and confronts this lawyer and also me this week with a new thought. Look at this man who acts in mercy. Stop asking who is worthy of love and ask instead, am I motivated by love in all that I do? The gospel changes the way we see ourselves, and as a result, it changes the way we see those around us. It's not because they've become something different, but because we have that we love others. And this brings us to the communion table this morning. I think if we step back and look at this exchange from 30,000 feet, as it were, the amazing thing to me is that this lawyer in dialogue with Jesus, is the man who's on the side of the road left for dead. Guys, he's been overpowered by an absolute savage enemy who loves to rob, steal, kill, and destroy. That's what John said. That's what Jesus says in John 10 about the enemy. He's a robber. He steals, he kills, he destroys. And he's overpowered this man. He's left broken and, spiritually speaking, penniless, without resources to help himself. He's left for dead on the side of the road. He needs a neighbor. He needs Jesus. This is the amazing thing about this story. He asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, I think, is saying to him, let me paint you a picture of who you are. You imagine in your hubris, in your self-confidence, that you are godlike in your capacity to bless and help others. You don't yet realize that you're the needy one. You're broken, broken and penniless. You need me. You need Jesus. You need a neighbor. We all do. And when we come to the communion table, which we're about to do here in just a second, when we come to this table... What we are confessing is that we need Jesus. The communion table is a very graphic statement in the midst of Christian life that proclaims very openly that we need a Savior and that we could not save ourselves. 
we don't gather as people who are celebrating our capacity to inherit salvation. We are gathering to celebrate that Jesus has gifted us with salvation. We praise God for that.